You guys can be seated. Well, good morning, Bethel HP. How are you guys this morning? Uh, so my name is Jared Bryan. I'm the pastor of Community Life and Missions. And I was thinking about it. I don't think I've been at this campus, at least to preach, in over a year. And so uh, we love this campus. We've missed you guys. Uh, a lot can happen in a year, right? So our oldest daughter, Genevieve, she's five now. She's in kindergarten. So now for the next who knows how many years, we're in that rhythm of school life. Our youngest daughter, Penelope, just turned two last week. And she is a full-blown three-nager. <laughs> if you know what I'm talking about, if you have twos and threes, two-nager maybe, I don't know. Uh, but, but we love them. It's such a sweet phase of life. They are still in that phase where I get home, I pull into the garage, they hear me coming, and I get out of the car and I hear this, dig, 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 dig. and I can hear this, and I'm like, what in the world is going on? And I open the door, and they're jumping up and down there, Daddy! And they grab me around the legs, and I'm hoping that lasts till they're 18. So, um, no, it's a, a sweet phase of life. There's been a lot going on. There's been a lot going on in the areas of ministry I lead. So, uh, one of the major areas I lead is our missions and outreach ministry. And God has done a lot over the last year or two. And there's a lot ahead. So, speaking of, shameless plug, two weeks from today is our next Mission Sunday. And we want all of you to be there. It's going to be awesome. Yeah. Two people are excited about missions. Um, <laughs> no, it's going to be really, really good. We're going to have several of our ministry partners here uh, from all over the globe, from all over the region. Uh, we're going to have a time of just intense prayer and worship, specifically praying over the nations, over our neighbors. Uh, in the morning, it's all going to be missions themed. Then we want to encourage you to come back. Uh, Bethel Crown Point at 6 o'clock on October 13th. Uh, don't miss it. It's going to be great, so we're going to do that prayer and worship time, and then we're going to have a time where basically we'll have interactive prayer stations, I'm going to call them, and they're just uh, kind of like museum exhibits. So you go in and you'll learn about refugee ministry. There'll be one on international church planning, one on praying for the nations, one on least reached people groups. So it's going to be really good, really intense. Uh, you're not going to want to miss it. Uh, and, and I know you will be blessed as we are just praying that we want to, we want to see people be educated, inspired, and empowered to fulfill their role for the Great Commission and missions, local and global. And so I hope you uh, be a part of that. Well, what do you say we dig into God's word? Yeah? Before we do that, I think let's pray again because you can never pray enough. So, Father, we submit this morning, this time to you. We submit our lives to you because you are worthy of them. You are the only one worthy of everything, of all of our lives, our hearts, our adoration, as Daniel said, our affections. So may our affections be expressed in our worship, in our listening of the word, in the preaching of the gospel. God, I pray you would give me clarity, and all glory would be to you and you alone. And Father, truly affection is only realized when it is expressed. And so may you unveil the darkness over people's minds and hearts this morning so they may clearly hear your word and respond to it. Father, there are certainly believers in here who have lost confidence in the gospel. Would they regain it through you this morning? Through your holy word, impressed upon by the Holy Spirit. God, I know there are some who are not saved, some who know they're not saved and aren't saved, some who think they're saved and are not saved. God, would you 
allow today to be the day of salvation for them. We could rejoice and change lives, and you infinitely with the angels rejoice even more when lost souls are found. That's what we want to see this morning. And to you be all glory, honor, and praise. And everybody who's excited about Jesus said, amen. Amen. Okay, we got a lot of people excited about Jesus. Good. Well, a few years ago, there was a major drought in the Midwest. Now, I know that's weird to talk about when it's literally pouring outside. And two days ago was such a torrential downpour that as I'm driving through it Friday night, I, I could have imagined animals lining up two by two. I mean, it was coming down. But I'm not talking about a dearth of precipitation. I'm talking about a drought of victory. The city of Cleveland, at the time, had the longest active sports drought of championships at the time in history. They had gone decades without any of their major sports teams having a champion. Do we have any Cleveland fans, by the way? No, awesome. One. Sweet, and they, this is how they rose their hand. So 52 years without any kind of a championship from any of their sports teams, and they got close. You had the Cleveland Indians who went to the World Series only to be mired in defeat. You had the Cleveland Browns who were, well, the Cleveland Browns. And then you had the Cleveland Cavaliers, and they finally got their guy, their homegrown guy, LeBron James, who would be the savior, who would lead them into the promised land and bring them a championship. And sure enough, 2007, they make the NBA Finals, only to be swept in four games. And things looked bleak. And then even worse, a few years later, LeBron took his talents to South Beach. He goes to Miami, where he wins them a couple of championships. And things are not looking good for the city of Cleveland. Things are looking hopeless. And yet the people of Cleveland, the fans in Cleveland, never lost hope. They believed this would be the year, losing season after losing season, this would be the season that our team is going to bring us the crown. In fact, it was so much so that to the point that ESPN actually released a 30 for 30 documentary called Believeland, which was a moniker that was given to the city because they, their fans were so resilient, they would not give up hope. They just would believe eventually it's going to happen. Cubs fans, you probably can sympathize. Well, you know the story. A few years ago, LeBron, actually before that, LeBron comes back, and, and sure enough, he leads them back to the NBA Finals, and they're facing off against the Golden State Warriors. They're down three games to one. Again, they're looking like perennial losers. Things are looking bleak, but they win game five, a glimmer of hope. They win game six, life is breathed into the city, and lo and behold, they win game seven. Cleveland is once again a champion, those two fans in the back, let me hear it, yay! (laughs) And everyone rejoiced in Cleveland. Cubs fans, you also remember a few years ago, there was something that kind of happened, like, you know, winning the World Series after, what, 100 and whatever years. That's a lot. Yeah, there we go. Woo! And so I remember watching that documentary, which was released just a month before the Cavs won the championship, by the way. And I remember watching that and watching the fans, and just like the Cubs fans a few years ago, they were crazy. I mean, the whole city was in uproar, rabid fans all over the place. They were just passionate. And I remember thinking, and I love sports, and I love basketball, but I remember thinking, all this is for a game where grown men 
are bouncing a leather ball up and down a wooden floor to put that ball into a ring. And if they put that ball into the ring more than the other team puts their ball into their ring, they win. Sounds silly, right? And people get fanatic. Why? Because people want to believe in something. They want to believe in a Savior who will lead them to the promised land. And it's not just sports. It's entertainment. It's success. It's business. It's possessions. It's comfort, it's houses, homes, cars, whatever the case may be, they're looking for the Savior to lead them to the promised land, looking to someone or something, and more often than not, they're looking within themselves. I could be my own Savior, and it doesn't work that way. You cannot do that on your own. That's not how we are made right with God. So it's not what we do or that we do, it's that we believe. And here's the main point. If you're taking notes, write this down. This is the whole point this morning in our passage. Believe that salvation is not earned by us. It was earned for us by who? Sunday school answer. Come on, Jesus. So turn to the book of Romans. We're back in Romans this morning, Romans chapter 10. How many of you, by the way, have ever heard of the Romans road? Show of hands. Oh, wow, a lot of you. So the Romans Road is a way to present the gospel to those who are not familiar with the tenets of the Christian faith. So you have like Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all sinners doomed to despair. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. We are eternally separated from God. We deserve his wrath, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is grace Romans 5, 8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You have substitutionary, sacrificial, atoning death from Jesus because God is love and he loves us and so he sends Jesus to die for us on our behalf. There's several verses in the Romans road. But today's passage, I think it's kind of like the signpost of the Romans road. Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Amen and amen, right? So let's do a little recap. In Romans 9, Paul speaks to divine sovereignty and election, but then in chapter 10, he describes human responsibility, namely that we are held accountable to our choices of belief or rejection. Is Paul being logically inconsistent? No. Somehow these two truths reconcile. We don't know how. We don't have to know how. We're not made to know how. And when people try to force an understanding of how, it's usually to the detriment of one of, uh, to the expense of one or the other, resulting in either spiritual legalism and pride or spiritual laziness. And in verse 1, chapter 10, Paul says that his prayer, the desire of his heart, is that his people might be saved. Oh, may we have this burdened heart for the salvation of others, right? Oh, may God give us that heart of burden. John Piper says Christians should care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. We should want people to be saved. And even more than that, we should want them to know the joy that we have in Jesus. Do you have joy in Jesus this morning? Good. So verse 1, Paul says, that's my heart, that's my prayer. Verse 2 and 3 says, the Jewish people had a zeal for God, but no real knowledge of his righteousness. 
When people have such misguided zeal for religious works-based righteousness. In Mexico City, there is a religious site that is actually the most visited Catholic pilgrimage site in the world. It's the third most visited religious pilgrimage site in the world. It's called our Basilica of the Lady of Guadalupe. And the legend is that centuries ago, the Virgin Mary appeared to several people in a vision at this spot. And so I mean millions, millions of people flock to this location. And there's an icon of the Virgin Mary. And so they'll go and they'll pray to Mary for healing or for prayers to be answered or for just assurance of their salvation. And, and it's, it's said that, and my, my dad has actually been there, he's seen this, that for two miles leading up to the basilica, people, some people will crawl on their knees across cobblestone streets leading up to the basilica. Their knees are bloodied and bruised. They are just hoping that they're showing God how truly uh, sincere their faith is. And they're missing the boat. Why? Why would they do this? Religious zeal. You can't say that they're not sincere, that they're not sincerely seeking God. It's just misguided. The Jewish people, in the same way, were dependent on their own works, completely missing the boat on God's call all along to righteousness by faith. And then you get to verse 4. And Paul says they were trying to establish their own righteousness, not realizing that Christ brings an end to all our striving for religious uh, righteousness by works. So through Christ, good riddance to all and any of our vain attempts at finding life in feeble religious works and self-righteousness, Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished, paid in full. We just sang it, the debt has been paid, it's done. There's nothing more we can add to it. Nothing more we can add to the gospel and to our salvation. Jesus paid it all. I think of someone who is drowning. When someone is drowning, they're flailing their arms about. They're thrashing their limbs. just trying to stay afloat. You know, treading water just to get a gasp of air as they keep their head above the water. And they're moving and moving and shaking and doing all this effort. But eventually, they're going to wear themselves out. Their strength will leave them. And they will sink and drown unless someone grabs them around the waist, pulls them to shore, where they just lay limp and rest in the saving of that person. Christ is the end to all that striving for everyone who believes. So what do we believe? Well, let's look at our passage. Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Huh. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend, descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. For what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 5, Paul is saying that Moses wrote about the righteousness based on the law, based on religious actions. And he says, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. He's quoting Leviticus 18.5, where 
where God says, I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. What's the key word in this passage? If. If you obey all my regulations and rules, you will find life in the promised land. There's just one problem with that. All of us have already broken God's commands. Probably on the drive here, right? If you're looking at your spouse right now, giving them the marital elbow, you know what I'm talking about. Not that I've ever been there. Moral perfection is a mirage. We were created to need God and to depend on God. So it was always salvation by grace through faith. This wasn't just merely a New Testament concept. It was always the case. And even worse, people set religious actions and good deeds as the standard to make themselves right with God. Have you ever asked someone if they think they're going to heaven? Like if you, if you were to go around and say, hey, what do, you, what do you think happens to you after you die? Most people will say, yeah, I'm, I'm going to heaven. A recent poll re- revealed that 85% of Americans believe that they're going to heaven after they die. 85, 8 out of 10 Americans would say, yeah, I'm, I'm, I have eternal life, I'm going to heaven. And they compare themselves to others. Well, I'm not Mother Teresa, but I'm no Hitler, as if that middle ground is the sweet spot of salvation. We just have to be better than Hitler. Our pastoral resident at Bethel, his name's Danny Saez. Some of you know him, awesome guy. If you don't know him, I would encourage you to get to know him. He's helping us work on our uh, potential Spanish-speaking ministry initiative that we're very excited about because we're going to see what God's going to do there. Well, right now, he and his wife are actually in Thailand. And a few days ago, they posted on social media this picture. They were in front of this ginormous Buddhist temple. And it was beautiful. It was very ornate. And they put in the caption, they found this inscription that said this, it is said that Buddha did 120 good works to try to reach perfection. Now, that's a lot of good works. 120 good works, is that enough? Well, if you want righteousness based on the law, not even close. You must follow all the law. James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of breaking all of it. So unless you are incredibly self-deceived, you should recognize the impossibility of following all of God's moral standards to the smallest degree. The law points but it lacks power. That is, the law points to something, or I should say someone, but it lacks the power to to be righteous. I think of like railroad tracks. I, I passed a couple on the way here. Now, a railroad track goes from point A to point B, and if you had a railroad track that you knew went to Chicago and you had to get to Chicago, you can't just like sit on the railroad track, all right, come on railroad, Take me to Chicago. You're going to be sitting there a long time. You are kidding yourself. Because the rails guide in the right direction, but they lack the power to move you. They simply show the way. And the law shows us the right direction. It shows us the way to righteousness, but it lacks the power to achieve its demands, which should make us quickly admit our need for grace. Oh God, I know how to be righteous. I know that I am to perfectly obey your standards, but I recognize my complete incapability to do so. I can never be righteous on my own. That's the realization we should have. 
the law points to a person more than principles. God desired obedience, for sure. But obedience from a heart of faith changed by his grace, not by our self-effort. The law was never meant to merit God's favor, but to reflect his character. And thus, instead of being blessed with life and righteousness, we are under a curse. Unless a perfect person were to take the curse for us in our place. And that's exactly what Jesus did. Look at Galatians 3. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. Rather, and here's Leviticus 18.5 again, The one who does them shall live by them. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The law points, but it lacks power. And then you get to verse 6. And Paul now contrasts righteousness by the law with righteousness by faith, hence the word but. He said, all right, you want to be righteous by following the law? Fine, you go ahead. But, and he then again quotes Moses, but this time from Deuteronomy 30. So turn to Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is Moses speaking on behalf of the Lord. Verse 10, you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law. Turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It's not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. What in the world is going on here? Is Paul proof texting? Now, if you don't know what that is, in in seminary, I remember my preaching professor told us you never, when you're preaching, you never want to proof text. Proof texting is where I'm going to cherry pick all these verses in scripture outside of their context, and I'm going to force them to mold into my opinion and what I want the scriptures to say. And so I take my opinion, my thoughts on the scripture, and I force it into the text rather than letting the text speak for itself. Is Paul doing that? Is he proof texting? How can Paul Take a passage about obedience to the law and apply it to salvation by faith. Because he is advocating that this passage actually points to the Messiah. It's a messianic passage. The only way for sinners to attain a right standing with God is vicariously through Jesus, who did perfectly fulfill the law. That's what verse 4 says. He succeeded where I have failed. And so when I trust in Jesus, it's as if I have perfectly obeyed God's law because Jesus perfectly obeyed God's law. When I trust in Jesus, it's as if I perfectly follow God because the Son perfectly followed the Father. His perfection becomes my perfection transferred to me by faith. Now imagine if the concept of righteousness by faith were a person and this person could talk. What would he say? Paul says that, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven as if to bring Christ down. I I am absolutely self-proclaimed math nerd. Any other math nerds in the house? Come on. 
Yeah, don't, no shame. Don't be scared. Now, and anyone can answer this. Can anyone actually count to infinity? What do you think? Can anyone count to infinity? Like, let's imagine that you, don't, you could never die. Could anyone count to infinity? Our, our, our daughter, our five-year-old Genevieve, loves counting to 100 right now and, like, showing it off. If you see it, they're going to be here in the second service, so if you see them, say, hey, are you Genevieve? Count to 100. She will love it. She just loves counting to 100. But let's say she just kept going and going and going and going and going. Could someone ever count to infinity? What do you think? Yes or no? No. Because there is no end to infinity. There is no goal. There is no end sight. And so you can keep counting and counting and counting. You could count to three billion trillion, but you're actually just as far away as when you started and counted to one. You can't because it is infinite. And religion attempts to climb the ladder to get to God. But it is an infinite ladder because our God is an infinite God. Infinite in holiness and glory and might and power and wisdom. So it is impossible. And religion seeks to elevate man to God's level. Last week I was working on this sermon. And when, I, when I'm writing a sermon, I like to listen to worship music. It just gets my heart in the right place. I want my heart to be soaked in, in worship, um, bringing him glory and just get, get my heart worshipful. And so I'm listening to worship on YouTube and up pops this ad. Now what do you do when an ad pops up on YouTube? Oh yeah, you are clicking skip ad, skip ad, skip ad. But it does that stupid five seconds to skip ad, five, four. And you're like, come on! So I'm clicking skip ad or trying to but I'm actually listening to this ad, and this ad got me. I actually watched the whole thing. And ironically, the ad was actually from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, otherwise known as Mormons. And uh, Mormons have a, they, they expound a false gospel. It's false teaching, it's heresy. But their online viral marketing is fantastic. And so uh, I... I I'm, very, I'm intrigued, I'm enthralled. I mean, I'm, I'm watching this, and they're talking about, it's two Mormon missionaries, and they're saying how, you know, man, I just feel so much closer to God, and it's all these things. And it sounded very nice, it sounded good, and I'm, I'm really intrigued by this, like, where are they going with this? And then toward the end, they say, you know, in, in Mormonism, we get to elevate ourselves to God. And I heard that, and it just broke my heart. When we moved to Indiana a few years ago, we moved from northeast Nevada. We were about three hours from Salt Lake City. So our community was 40 to 45% LDS. So I have, very, I have several friends who are Mormon. And, and they're so sincere in their faith. They have so much religious zeal. So much genuine desire to know and seek God. But they're just looking in the wrong direction. Going about it with their own effort. And it just broke my heart because religion seeks to elevate man to God, but the beauty is, the beautiful reality is that God came down to us. And in Jesus' incarnation, that means Jesus became flesh, he brought heaven down to us. How amazing is that truth, church? The creator humbled himself and became part of his creation to die at the hands of his creation in order to save his creation. And so do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven. Also, don't say in your heart who will descend into the abyss as if to bring Christ up from the dead. 
There's no need to think, who will conquer death for me? Who will descend into death and darkness and pull us up out of the pit? Jesus has already done that as well. This is referring to Jesus' resurrection. He defeated death. We just sang about it earlier. And so works-based righteousness attempts to do on man's power what only Jesus could do. How absurd. John Stott wrote, Storming the ramparts of heaven and potholing in Hades in search of Christ are equally unnecessary. For Christ has come and died and been raised and is therefore immediately accessible by faith. We do not need to do anything. Everything that is necessary has already been done. How could I scale the, the, the heights of heaven or plumb the depths of death and darkness to achieve salvation? I can't. And that's the realization we have to have. I can't because Christ has already done that. And so faith says Jesus has done what I could never do. Likewise, look at verse 8 in Romans 10. Paul is basically saying that righteousness is near to those who hear. Righteousness by faith is readily accessible to those who hear the gospel. So righteousness by faith says, the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. Righteousness by works is difficult, it's distant, but salvation in Jesus is near to us. Look again in Deuteronomy 30, verse 12. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. Interesting. Moses was telling the Israelites, you don't have to search high and low for God's revelation on what you should do. I'm telling you what to do. Follow God with all your heart and with all your soul. And that instruction is near you. It is already in your mouth and heart. But Paul now takes that passage and doesn't mention doing at all. There is no doing, but believing. You must realize that you cannot do. It's already been done. That is the word of faith. That is the gospel. And so far from being far away, infinitely above or below, salvation by grace through faith is already here in Christ. It's attainable. When you hear it, just believe. Just believe. Now, it's at this point, I have to say, Paul is not declaring faith in faith as if faith has some intrinsic value in and of itself. It's faith that righteousness is only possible through Jesus. Faith does not generate righteousness. Faith is how righteousness is received. And yet, many still desire and attempt righteousness by works. Why? Because it's appealing to our prideful, self-indulgent, sinful flesh. It puts us in control. We get to be in the captain's chair, thus perpetuating the very first sin, which was our dismissal of our need for God, our rejection of him and our dependence on him. What a scary way to live. I've actually counseled people in ministry who are so shaken up 
and fearful and anxious. I mean having literal panic attacks because they're thinking, what if I didn't do enough to earn or to keep my salvation? And so they have this skewed understanding of the gospel. What if, what if I didn't pray sincerely enough? What if the words I said weren't truly meant? Or what if I don't have enough faith as if we have to have this certain quantity of faith units in order to be saved? Or, or what if, uh, you know, what if there's not enough fruit in my life demonstrating that, you know, I'm not really saved? Or what if this? Or what if that? And they are just so panicked and shackled by fear. Living in bondage. Now, is that how God wants us to live? Not a chance. That's so enslaving. Jeffrey Wilson says, the sheer perversity of unbelief is shown by the many who prefer to take, undertake an impossible odyssey like going into heaven or going into death rather than putting their trust in an accessible Christ. It was unbelief that got humanity exiled from the garden. And therefore, it's belief that restores us to the garden, to that loving relationship with God, whereby man intimately and closely walks side by side with God. And Paul says, as Moses is saying, righteousness by faith is near. It's near to us. And that's where he gets to verse 9. So look back at Romans 10, verse 9, the appropriate response to the accessible gospel is not doing, but believing. How then can I be saved? That's the question that people want to know, right? How can I be saved? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Faith in Jesus is outward and inward. Internal faith, believe in your heart, and external demonstration of that faith, confess with your mouth, go hand in hand. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, why does he start with confess with your mouth first and then believe in your heart? Well, this isn't sequential order. In fact, actually, you look at the next verse, verse 10, gives the chronological order, belief in your heart followed by verbal confession. So, Faith is the inward cause of the outward confession. These are not separate activities, but two aspects of one expression of faith in Jesus. He says, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. This is not confession like you would confess to a friend, a priest, or a pastor. This is confession in the essence of acknowledge that Jesus is Lord. So to confess Jesus as Lord is to admit two things. First, Jesus is the Lord. He is sovereign. He is holy. He's not one among many options. Jesus is God. He's not merely a prophet. He's not just a good guy. He's not a moral teacher. Jesus is the king of all kings and the Lord of all lords. He is the Lord. Amen? But it's also declaring and admitting Jesus is my Lord. He has supreme place in my heart. And so by faith, we are realigned to our original intended position under God's sovereign authority, worshiping him as we were created to do. And this isn't, listen, this is really important to understand. This is not fire insurance salvation. It's not like if I just believe or just say some words, I get my get out of hell free card. No, 
That's not what Paul is advocating. Robert Mount says, those who say that they intend to have a good time on earth and take a back seat in heaven do not realize that there are no back seats for those who approach salvation with this attitude. You understand, even the demons believe in God. James 2 says that. Even the demons believe God. Now, their belief is in the sense of theological assent. Uh, They agree to a certain set of beliefs about God. So, they... Demons have been, as fallen angels, in the presence of the Father, seeing all his glory, all his splendor, all his majesty. They've seen all that. So, of course, they believe about God, but they do not submit to Christ's authority. Anyone can believe about God, but it's that. It's saving faith and trust your soul to Jesus through his righteousness, not your own. And so declaring Jesus is Lord implies, I am not Lord. I am not my own personal Savior. I am not in the captain's chair. I cannot save myself. Now, is declaring Jesus as Lord, is this some binding contract whereby as long as I say those words, God owes me salvation? Is verbal profession required for salvation? Well, some treat it that way. I remember when I was younger, uh, growing up, I would, you know, be talking to adults, and their, their hearts were sincere. They were heartfelt in, in presenting the gospel, but then they would say, well, let's just pray the prayer of salvation. Repeat these words after me. And I've heard over the years many people doing that. Well, just pray this prayer of salvation. Repeat these words after me. Listen, folks, this is not a magical formula. This is not an incantation for salvation, for that would be outward, hollow, religious works, the very thing that Paul is arguing against. That's not the case. Anyone can just utter some words, but this comes from deep within a heartfelt, genuine faith. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 12, 34, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what does the heart believe? Namely this, Jesus rose. Do you guys believe that? Jesus rose. The resurrection of Jesus is the linchpin of the gospel. It's not good news if Jesus stayed dead. Now, that seems obvious, but listen, that makes Jesus, he's not, he's not just another one of the many dead religious leaders or prophets. He rose, and the resurrection proved that he truly is Lord. Romans 4.25 literally says that our justification depends on his resurrection. So belief in Jesus' resurrection inherently implies faith in the whole gospel. You cannot rise from the dead if you were never dead. Surely that, you know, that makes logical sense. But I say that because if you look at this verse, it sounds like, oh, I just have to believe in his resurrection and not anything else. No, that's not what Paul is saying. You are believing that Jesus, the Son of God, became human lived a perfect life that we could never live, paid the penalty of death for our sin that we could never pay, absorbed the Father's wrath on the cross that we could never withstand, and rose from the dead to conquer death, and he willingly shares that victory with us by faith. How awesome is our God. And then he says, with that belief, that salvation by faith, you will be saved. Not might be. Not could be, not gee, I hopefully maybe someday will be. You 
will be saved. Righteousness is about the eternal life that we receive by faith but do not deserve. Salvation is about the eternal punishment that we deserve but do not receive. And so by faith in Jesus, we are both made righteous and saved. Now you guys tell me, is that a joyous truth or what? So Jesus says in Mark 1.15, repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. If I were to summarize this passage, Jesus does it pretty well right there. Repent and believe. I think a lot of people don't really understand repentance, what repentance means. Repentance, the Greek word for repentance is this word metanoia. Meta means after, noia means mind. So after mind, it's literally a changing of mind. It's shifting your mindset from thinking one way to thinking another. And so when you repent and believe in Jesus, you are rejecting that you can save yourself and simultaneously by faith you are acknowledging that you need the Savior. Repentance and faith are two sides of the same coin. You are turning away from self-salvation and turning to salvation by faith and grace in Jesus. So believe that salvation is not earned for us. It was earned by us through Jesus. I want to ask you guys to stand right now. You know, the text says the word of faith is near. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, today is the day of salvation. Today. Now is the appointed time. And I just wonder how many of you are like, you know, I, I'm not sure that I'm saved. You know, 1 John 5 says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you're saved. You can know because it has nothing to do with our ability, nothing to do with our actions, nothing to do with our performance and our earning it, but it's solely through Jesus earning it on our behalf. You can know salvation. And so maybe for you, today is the day of salvation. Now is the appointed time. Surrender hopeless self-effort and self-dependence and trust in Jesus, our Savior who rose from the dead to conquer death and to lead us to the promised land. How incredible is our victorious Lord, right? Church, come on, how incredible is our victorious Lord? Darkness could not defeat him. The grave couldn't hold him. Death bows to him. We don't trust in a dead martyr. We trust in a living Savior who conquered death on our behalf. 